Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution. Personalized M&Ms. Just imagine the look on your grad's face when they receive a custom candy creation featuring their school's colors, name, and even their photo printed right on some M&Ms. It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Hey, everybody. Got a great one today, finally. Sheldon Whitehouse on the unbelievably successful 50-year right-wing scheme to capture the Supreme Court. Just for clarity, here's how we started the conversation. The scheme, this is your book, uh, The Scheme, How the Right-Wing Used Dark Money to Capture the Supreme Court. Now, what's what's the book about? <laughs> I read it. I read it. I know what it's about. <laughs> it's my theory that the right-wing used dark money to capture the Supreme Court. I wish you'd prove it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, of course, this brought us Dobbs in the last session when it also blocked the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating greenhouse gases and limited states' ability to control guns. It's going to bring us this term to ending affirmative action in college and uh, graduate school admissions. But before all that, before they... Even before they blocked Merrick Garland and stole two seats on the court, the one that would have been Garland's, um, whom they blocked in February of 2016 after Scalia died, because McConnell said, there's already been votes cast in New, in the New Hampshire primary. Let the American people decide. And then the one they installed the week before the 2020 election, Amy Coney Barrett, when there had been, of course, scores of millions of early votes cast in the general election, not not in a primary. But well before that, Sheldon tells us how this right-wing scheme created a 5-4 Roberts Court that led the way for Citizens United and dark money flooding into and completely corrupting our politics. But before that, Sheldon speaks to the remarkable, uninterrupted litany of other 5-4 pro-corporate, anti-worker, anti-consumer decisions by the Roberts Court. I, I sat on the Judiciary Committee with Sheldon. He, unlike me, is both a judicial scholar and a veteran prosecutor. He was the attorney general for Rhode Island and uh, then its U.S. attorney. I, on the other hand, am not a lawyer, but as you may have heard me say before, I played one in a sketch. And I bring up Citizens United in Shelby County here because both decisions, pernicious, pernicious decisions, were based on glaring factual errors. And if there turns out to be a glaring factual error that is relevant to a a decision, you're supposed to revisit the damn decision. In Citizens United, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority decision, and he said that there would be disclosure that, yes, corporations and labor unions and anyone who had the First Amendment right to put as much money toward, quote, independent expenditures uh, that they would have to disclose. They would have to disclose. But, of course, that didn't happen. So a super PAC can spend an infinite amount of money attacking my opponent as long as it's not coordinated with my campaign. So uh, you get ads like the millions of dollars of ads that were run against my former legal counsel, Josh Riley, in New York's 19th. Now, I've talked about Josh's race before because Josh worked with me for years as my counsel on judiciary and is a brilliant and purely motivated person, as brilliant and purely motivated a person as I know. And these dark money groups ran these sick, dark, 180-degree lies against Josh that made me sick. It was like the Josh Riley's radical allies want to defund the police. And then they'd run darkened, slowed-down footage of Josh to make him look sinister and run, put the words defund the police over his face 
with his mouth silently moving very slowly. When Josh and I worked very hard to fund the police, we wrote legislation that funded bulletproof vests for police around the country. We did bipartisan legislation that funded training for cops to de-escalate situations fueled by mental illness or drug addiction. And of course, those ads they ran against Josh, that was all dark money. No no disclosure of where that money came from. Josh lost by 1% in a toss-up district. He ran six points ahead of Hochul, the Democrat governor. We tragically lost the majority in the House in New York State, by the way. And the state was flooded with dark money ads attacking Democrats on crime. And here's what Justice Kennedy wrote in his decision in Citizens United about disclosure. Modern technology makes disclosures rapid and informative. A campaign finance system that pairs corporate independent expenditures with effective disclosure has not existed before today. With the advent of the Internet, prompt disclosure of expenditures can provide shareholders and citizens with the information needed to hold corporations and elected officials accountable for their positions and supporters. And shareholders can determine whether their corporation's political speech advances the corporation's interest in making profits. And citizens can see whether elected officials are, quote, in the pocket of so-called moneyed interests, unquote. The First Amendment protects political speech and disclosure permits citizens and shareholders to react to the speech of corporate entities in a proper way. This transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions and give proper weight to different speakers and messages. What the fuck? That was pretty explicit. Transparency enables the electorate to make informed decisions. Of course, that didn't happen. So this 5-4 decision was based on a fundamental factual error. There is no disclosure. We had a vote in the Senate in 2010 on the Disclose Act to do what Justice Kennedy said was the reason this was not going to corrupt politics. It went down 59 Democrats to 41 Republicans. They they blocked it from going to a vote by one vote, skins and shirts. Scott Brown had won Ted Kennedy's seat in January and cast the deciding vote against disclosure. And in this podcast, I, I tell a pretty remarkable story about that vote where a Republican colleague of mine said the stupidest thing any senator ever said to me. You have that uh, to look forward to later in the podcast. So the whole basis for the Citizens United decision was grounded in an enormous, basic factual error. When a decision is made on a glaring factual error, you're supposed to revisit that decision. Well, of course, they did not on the most pernicious decision since, I don't know, Dred Scott. Now, in Shelby County, decision written by Chief Justice Roberts, Shelby County gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act by getting rid of Title V pre-clearance. In the 1965 Voting Rights Act, they put in Title V, which said that if one of the states or jurisdictions that had a history of discrimination in elections, if that state or jurisdiction changed any of its election rules, that the Justice Department, the U.S. Department of Justice, had to review the changes and sign off on them. Well, Justice Roberts said we didn't need preclearance anymore because it worked. Here's what he wrote. There is no denying that the conditions that originally justified these measures no longer characterize voting in the covered jurisdictions. Nearly 50 years later, things have changed dramatically. To which Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg famously responded, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work To stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Well, guess who was right? If you guessed Ginsburg, good for you. After Shelby, states and jurisdictions that had previously been covered by Title V suddenly, well, went back to their old ways. The Republican North Carolina state legislature went right to work writing new voting restrictions that, quote, targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. That's from the decision from the Fourth Circuit about the voter ID law that the North Carolina state legislature passed in 2013, right after Shelby County, in order to, quote, target blacks with almost surgical precision. 
in the 2014 midterm elections. Well, that circuit court decision didn't come out until 2016, almost two years after the Republicans narrowly flipped the U.S. Senate seat there in North Carolina. But did the court revisit Shelby County after it was definitely shown to have been wrongly decided? Of course not. And worse, states that previously had no history of discriminating by race in elections started targeting minorities, the poor college students, immigrants, traditional Democratic constituents. States like Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, which had flipped to Republican after the 2012 midterms started suppressing votes. The first Citizens United, as I said, corrupted our politics with this continually growing flood of special interest dark money, and it is dark. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And Shelby County gutted the Voting Rights Act by getting rid of preclearance. Sheldon and I discuss how both Citizens United and Shelby County were wrongly decided by factual errors. Undeniable factual errors, bastards. This is our democracy. The right-wing takeover of the Supreme Court and of the circuit and district courts in the last 50 years has been a big part of what has undermined our democracy. And this 6-3 court is not going anywhere. So this is a very important one today. Finally, Sheldon Whitehouse on the successful scheme to take over the judicial branch of our democracy, which has had a profound effect on the other two branches as well. So an important one, you know, for a change. Sheldon Whitehouse ahead. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Scheme. This is your book. Uh, the Scheme, How the Right Wing Used Dark Money to capture the Supreme Court. Now, what's what's the book about? <laughs> I read it. I read it. I know what it's about. It's my theory that the right wing used dark money to capture the Supreme Court. I wish you'd prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Did my level best. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, pretty definitive and it's scary, really. You wrote a, a previous book called Captured which is about all kinds of capture, like regulatory, like agency capture. Yep. Um, this is, and you talked about court capture in this. And what capture is, is what it sounds like, right? And so... <laughs> yeah, visualize a late 19th century railroad commission that has been set up to establish the rates for railroad cargo and passenger tickets. And obviously, the railroad barons would like to make sure that all their friends were running the railroad commission and that all the decisions went their way. That's what capture is. And that's what I contend has happened to the Supreme Court. Not conservative, captured. 
And uh, the capture is by dark money from interests that are interested in, oh, protecting corporations and yep. um, getting uh, judges on the Supreme Court who uh, will rule in, in their favor. And that's what they've gotten. Yeah. Taking apart the regulatory apparatus of the United States government uh, so that, among other things, polluters can pollute with uh, freedom. Well, that was uh, one of the, you know, everyone focused on Dobbs, but that was West Virginia. Yep. And of course, this was to deal with greenhouse gases. And the idea was for the EPA supposedly had authority to do this until this decision. That's the general outline, because there was Massachusetts versus EPA, as you know, beforehand, which said these greenhouse gases are pollutants and therefore the Clean Air Act is there to do something about it. And the Clean Air Act has been like pretty clear since the 1970s. So there actually wasn't much that was very novel here. The court just brought in a new doctrine imported from Cato or somewhere. Yeah, Cato, yeah. Federal Society, George Mason, Scalia University, School of Law. Well, let's, let's talk about the Federalist Society. Uh, they're... How, how many Federalist Society uh, justices are there now? I think Roberts has technically turned in his membership, so I guess that leaves five. <laughs> He's turned in his membership, so he was a member I of the Federalist so. Society. Yeah. Well, he has such high ethical standards. Yeah, it's like the whole court. Well, okay, so five. So that would be all the, uh, the right-wing judges. Yeah. And as you recall, the three Trump judges all came so-called off of the Trump list of federal society judges that he touted. You remember him uh, saying, I'm going to pick only all federal society judges. That's the gold standard. The federal society is going to tell me who to pick. And the federal society confirmed, yeah, we told him who to pick. Which is always funny to me when during like these confirmation hearings where you're trying to ask them where you stand on row. Remember when Lindsey Graham said to Gorsuch, if if the president asked you to overrule Roe, what would you do? And he goes, I would have walked out of that room. You remember that? <laughs> and, and, and it's like, judges don't do that. Not on this side of Pennsylvania. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, first, he might have meant once he was a Supreme Court judge. No, he was in his interview. But I can promise you, while he was in his interview for the position, he would not he have done that. Walk out of any room. Well, all he would have had to say is, "Sir, uh, I not I shouldn't answer that, but may I suggest that you look at who sent me?" Exactly. I mean, of course they know, and you didn't have to ask Coney Barrett. You didn't have to. You don't have to ask any of these. You don't have to ask Kavanaugh because the Federalist Society. Only will back. Now, Kavanaugh auditioned. Yep. He auditioned like a fiend. He auditioned like crazy. But one of his auditions was on an abortion case, and it was yep. uh, a young girl who was held by uh, immigration authorities. And she was pregnant and wanted an abortion. And the case came before him, and he was trying to, he just kept delaying it, right? Delaying her. Yep. Uh, and so, so the would time way, out. Time would run out. And then she wouldn't be able to get the uh, abortion to which she had a constitutional right. He was just going to run out the clock on her. Which is his audition. You see, I'm, you know, I'm reliable on yeah. uh, on choice. Or, yes, he, did it on, he did it there. He did it on guns. He did it on dark money. He was very, very attentive. But you remember, he was not on the original Trump lists. Yes. So he had so he that's really, hence really, the audition really had to <laughs> audition like crazy, way more than any of the others. I prepared a number for from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> exactly. And uh, he knew Leonard Leo also because they'd worked together back in the Bush era when Leonard Leo torpedoed Harriet Myers and put Sam Alito on the court instead. Harriet Myers for uh, everybody was for Supreme Court. This is not she, uh, Bush uh, W nominated for the Supreme Court. She was yeah. a White House counsel, his friend, his White House counsel, a solid Republican and nominated. And humiliatingly, Bush had to withdraw her because of pressure from the big right wing donors orchestrated by none other than 
Leonard Leo. And there down in the office somewhere was little Brett Kavanaugh learning his lessons about what it took to get on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So uh, uh, tell me who Leonard Leo is. Tell everybody who Leonard Leo is. Uh, Leonard Leo is an operative who has been involved in Republican judicial nominees for quite a while. He was the architect of the list. Uh, He probably was behind Mitch McConnell's decision to stall Merrick Garland. I think he was delivered the message from the big donors that this wasn't going to happen. He runs a group of, at any given time, probably 12 to 20 front groups that he can filter money through. And one of them is called the Judicial Crisis Network. And that's the group that took big anonymous contributions to pay for all the TV ads against Merrick Garland, for Gorsuch, for Kavanaugh, and for Barrett. And conveniently, the Judicial Crisis Network is on the same hallway in the same building, right down the hall from the Federalist Society, and they answer each other's doors. You don't have to hide that. I mean, nope. No. Well, we haven't done a very good job of looking and exposing. Right. It's one thing to be the sleeping cop. It's the other thing to be the actual burglar. They're the actual burglars. And that's the bad part. So Leonard Leo. Now, does he have any money now? Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you as you know, does, is he, does he have enough for the, the, the rent? A peculiar right wing billionaire who was previously associated with the Heartland Institute, which distinguished itself by putting up billboards comparing climate scientists to the Unabomber. That's kind of where he comes from. Uh-huh. Uh, dropped $1.6 billion in a complicated corporate transaction into a 501c4 company set up by Leonard Leo for the purpose of receiving this $1.6 billion and filtering it from there into his other 12 to 20 front groups. So who knows where that's going to sprinkle out. But He's got a $1.6 billion slush fund to play with, which I think is probably his reward for having uh, successfully packed the court with the uh, big donors' chosen justices. $1.6 billion. Quite a payday. You could live for a long time on $1.6 billion, particularly if you're paying yourself salaries through multiple groups to get the money. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of the heartland, uh, it was a Heartland Foundation. What Heartland? Heartland is, yeah, Heartland Institute. Institute. Yeah, they're all, they're they're institutes. You know, they court, uh, put out a lot of disinformation about climate. Yep, that's their primary role is to be a climate disinformation spigot. And you spent a lot of time. I saw uh, a lot on the Senate floor talking about. You used to join me in our weather denial speeches when we were raising hell about this scheme. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at least now people kind of accept, I, I guess they accept that there's climate change. But Trump says it's a Chinese hoax. But- if you set Trump aside, I think that among normal people, there's almost nobody who hasn't seen climate change effects in their life. And there's an enormously powerful case for Democrats to make to the American public that the American public was lied to by the fossil fuel industry using Republicans as their mouthpieces to propagate those lies. And I think that's a very powerful argument for us to make as more and more people see farms flooded, crops withering in drought, wildfires out of season, the whole rest of nature's cornucopia of miseries that uh, climate change is launching at us. And sea sea level rising, which it kind of, you know, there's a reason for that. It's a big deal in Rhode Island. Yeah, we've redrawn our maps to show what Rhode Island's going to look like in 20, 30, 40, 50 years as we as we lose our shoreline to the rising sea. Of course, of course. Um, so Garland not being taken up. You remember, uh, of course, uh, very well, McConnell saying you, you know, there's already Boatsman cash. In New Hampshire, he called it a Biden, what he called the Biden rule. I don't know if you remember me in judiciary reading that speech, Biden's speech. 
because McConnell said that Biden said you can't take up a and this was from 88. Right. Yeah. When, when Bush was, and uh, but he wasn't there was no one nominated. He just <laughs> it, it was in June after, as the court term was ending. And he said, if someone resigns, you know, the, the president has to consult with us or nominate a moderate. That's what he said. And we're not going to take up someone who is we're not consulted with. And obviously, Garland is the most moderate. <laughs> I mean, and then, of course, you saw Lindsay saying if in 2020, during a, if there's an election, we will not take up a nominee and you can hold this. Hold the tape. Hold the tape. Hold the tape. Why in in Coney Barrett's hearing? I'm sorry, I I may have urged you to do this. <laughs> Why didn't we just say uh, hold the tape? What happened to the tape? Here, let me quote you again. Hold the tape. What happened to the tape? I got to repeat this. You said hold the tape. See, if I had been there, I would have done that. I know because you're so good at that kind of stuff. You can get away with it. Those of us who are mere mortals have to ask. Simpler questions. Well, you have to use your 30 minutes to make the case. <laughs> There's a lot of Plus, dark I, money. <laughs> I, I use my time. To make, exactly. I made the dark money case. And that actually was a very productive use of my time because it really did go viral. It was the first time I had such a big response to what I'd been saying. I think it really, you know, every once in a while, an idea kind of breaks through. That idea broke through that day. So I'm, I'm glad I put the time into that. The funny part is that following me was Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. And I've been using these little placards. He decided he was going to have a placard, too, and somebody got it to him. And the placard was just every Democratic group that Republicans don't like, mm -hmm. randomly connected by, you know, blocks, randomly connected by arrows. There was no rhyme or, or reason to it. And it had been prepared for him by a dark money group. <laughs> to show how, you know, Democratic dark money was supposedly this big problem. Did he say that? Did he say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we were able to this show This was it. prepared by one of the groups that uh, Sheldon mentioned. <laughs> uh, Ted. Okay. Um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. I have a couple bones to pick with him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Balls and strikes. Okay. So. When he had his confirmation hearing, he was talking about how sort of conservative he was going to be in terms of rulings and make them very narrowly, but also just call balls and strikes. And the thing is, is that the strike zone was just different for corporations who had a very teeny, when they're up to bat, a teeny, his strike zone would be like, okay, I need to see your wheelhouse. Show me exactly where you want the ball, and that'll be the strike. And then with labor, it was a huge strike zone. I mean, you could bean a guy, it'd be strike. And you also get the first base because you've been hit in the head. But also, he said that he was going to do narrow decisions. He, on Citizens United, that was a 5-4, but that was hardly, that was some group, right, that wanted to see that they get their movie up. And that became there's a right for corporations and other groups to spend as much money as they like. Yep. They took a question about showing a movie and used it to completely upend the entire campaign finance system of the country. And they did it so late in the proceedings that none of the parties had a chance to build a record on that larger question. I believe they deliberately did it late so there could be no record. Because courts are supposed to follow evidence in the record. If there was a record, it would have showed what a stupid decision this was and how it just was not internally consistent, didn't make any political logic, wasn't consistent with human nature, wasn't even logical. But they dodged all that by rushing to expand the question at the very last minute after briefs were in, when any chance of a record was closed, and they answered a question that no court below had even proposed is the question. And that has poisoned our political system. Yeah, it has made it 
stink. You know, That's how I, all the dark money got in. You know, it's no, no point putting in dark money if all you can do is a $2,500 contribution. Who cares? It's when you want to drop $25 million into a race that suddenly it becomes really important to hide who you are. Yeah. I remember when uh, McCain-Feingold, of course, limited the amount of money people could put in the campaigns. And that was a reaction to Nixon and other stuff. So when McCain and Feingold came up, I think there were 14 Republican senators who had voted against McCain-Feingold that were there for the first Disclose Act after Citizens United. Now, Kennedy had said, he said there would be disclosure, right? It was the premise and principle of the decision that there would be disclosure, because if there is not disclosure, it causes corruption. That is the premise of the case. Let me understand this, because it also this in Shelby County, because in Shelby County, it was basically uh, let's get rid of Title five. Right. You know, and, and Robert said we can get rid of it because uh Racism is over. Legislatures won't pass bad laws to try to prevent people of color from voting. Yeah. And and uh, uh, Ginsburg said that's like getting rid of your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And yeah. then, OK, and then right away, bum, North Carolina creates this uh, voting scheme that the Fourth Circuit, a couple of years later, because they're doing this under Title II, not Title V. They say it targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. Correct. Their, their language, surgical precision in the court. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you're Roberts and saying, well, these these southern states <laughs> have stopped me, don't you go like, you know, I was wrong. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, in after Citizens United, the next case up was that one out of Montana, uh, Bullock. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an amicus brief in that case with John McCain. And the two of us told the court, hey, guys, you said that all this unlimited spending was going to be transparent. It's not. You are wrong. Your premise is flawed. You've got to reconsider this. By the way, you also said it was all going to be independent of campaigns. It's not. You are wrong. You've got to reconsider this. And they refused to even take up the case. They refused to even allow it to be argued. They just simply threw out Montana's case and went on about their business. So the court has known about errors that it has made, not errors of law, factual errors, things that they found to be true that were provably not true. And instead of going back and correcting the clear, plain error, they just bull forward because that is what protects the result that they wanted all along. So Kennedy can't go, hey, guys, I said <laughs> that there won't be corruption because there'll be disclosure. Now, the reason I brought up both McCain-Feingold and, uh, of course, Citizens United, which ended McCain-Feingold, is that these 14 senators, I think it was 14 Republicans who had voted against uh, McCain-Feingold had said things like sunshine is the greatest disinfectant. All you need is disclosure. Disclose, 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 disclose. Yep. And I found the guys who had said that. Yep. <laughs> and remember that vote? Yeah, we went through that on the Senate floor. We read out their statements before the vote. And to a person, the ones that were still in the Senate, just took a dive and voted to protect dark money, voted against disclosure. So I stood in the well and bothered those guys. And I said, what happened to disclose, disclose, disclose? And then they look at me like you're annoying and then vote down. And then I would say it to someone else. Another Republican will go like, well, it doesn't disclose labor unions. And I go, yes, it does. Oh, oh, OK, down. And then I had I don't know if I should say who this was. This was one of the stupidest things the senator said to me ever. So he goes, well, it doesn't have labor unions don't have to disclose. I go, yes, it does. It does. He goes, OK, well, let's say the New York Times endorses someone. That's worth a lot. They don't have to disclose. And I said to him, <laughs> it's in the New York Times. 
And he goes, oh, yeah. That, no. Oh, right. Right. Uh, I guess it is disclosed right across the top of the front page. Or just the editorial page. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be across the front page, but that's that's a lot of disclosure. Yeah, but one you you raised a really important point. So let me jump in and say one thing: what Citizens United had in common with Shelby County is that the court premised its decision on an error of fact, and that makes these two decisions both very interesting and very vulnerable. Because if you go all the way back to Marbury v. Madison, the whole concept of judicial supremacy that is the judiciary's job to interpret the constitution to say what the law is but they have no special skill that anybody should be uh recognizing in what the facts are and when they have gotten the facts indisputably wrong demonstrably erroneous and then they don't go back and fix it it's a weakness in the decision are you saying that Kennedy saying there'll be disclosure is getting the facts wrong or it's not that can't Correct. be what you're uh, that? OK. And Robert's saying these there's not going to be any more racist legislating about votes. Obviously, got the facts wrong. Cases piled up instantly, but didn't want to go back and correct, even though it was to use the Supreme Court's own phrase, demonstrably erroneous. Yeah. No one. Does anyone like point that out? Like when they're arguing. <laughs> Because Neil Kotyal is going to go, go, oh, by the way, <laughs> before I argue uh, our position on uh, Moore v. Harper, which is a scary, uh, that is the, what is it called? The independent legislative doctrine or theory? Independent state legislature, yeah. Well, I filed a brief in that case going through some of the more repellent of the amici who had turned up to argue for the independent state legislature doctrine. And to connect the dots among the various amici, because so many of them were linked together, between some of those amici and the plot to overthrow the election, uh, many of them had been active in the efforts to overthrow the election uh, on behalf of Trump, and also the relationship between some of the amici and groups that spent tens of millions of dollars putting Gorsuch. Uh, Kavanaugh and Barrett onto the court uh, undisclosed. They didn't bother to tell the court, oh, by the way, I'm the corporate sibling of this group that spent $60 million putting you all on the court. Unfortunately, it fell to me to point that out, but the court should be cleaning that mess up and getting these proper disclosures out itself. Have you taken away from people you've talked to on how that's it seemed like a three, three, three thing. Is that what you're? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's been enough uh, noise kicked up around this case. Um, and they know it's going to be watched very carefully and they know it's a wildly extremist doctrine. So what's the what's the middle ground? I mean, what are the three? Uh, I guess that's Roberts, Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh. What are they? What's the middle ground there? I, I can't tell, but I just. The middle ground is something along the lines of um, in this case, they didn't get there, but, you know, we need to allow room for the state legislatures to have uh, authority in uh, controlling how electors are selected and establish the proposition a little bit um, like to go back to our West Virginia versus EPA case. The major questions doctrine is now alive and well. It's a new theory for them to play with. So they could, without ruling in favor of the state in this case, they could still create a very significant new doctrine to play with in the future. And they're doing a lot of that. They're doing a lot of that. building themselves new doctrines to play with in the future. So it's like a predicate to. Exactly. When you went to Shelby County, Shelby County was preceded by a decision in which Justice Roberts talked about, I think it was called equal sovereignty doctrine, and that states are equally sovereign. This was a doctrine that I guess went back to when we were adding new states to the union. Mm -hmm. And when you were adding a new state to the union, you couldn't prejudice them as newer states they had to kind of step in as like full fledged states. So there was this equal sovereignty doctrine. 
He dusted that off in a decision not long before Shelby, didn't know quite what he meant by that or why he was doing it. And then in Shelby, he said, well, you know, this well-established equal sovereignty doctrine means that one set of states can't have different rules than another set of states. So the uh, rules of the uh, Civil Rights Act that required preclearance for states that had terrible records of suppressing uh, particularly African-American votes were in a separate category than others that had not done that. You know, now you look back, go, oh, that's why he was doing that. Now I get it. Yeah, he's he's a little slippery. I mean, slimy. Uh, he's crafty. That's for sure. Crafty. That'd be the more complimentary. Yeah. When we when he upheld the Obama case, he snuck in two things that were very powerful. One very substantially reduced the Commerce Clause power of Congress. And second, created a whole new doctrine that he called the anti-dragooning doctrine, which is that Congress has to be limited in what it can require states to do in order to get federal funds, because otherwise the state is being dragooned by the irresistible prospect of federal funds into doing policies it may not like. That was the Medicaid expansion piece of it, right? Yes, I think you're right about that. I, the the offer of federal support for Medicaid was the so-called dragooning. All 50 states were going to have Medicaid expansion, and I th- believe I, I don't I don't know if it was dragooning, <laughs> but I think that that was the the kind of piece of the ACA that he unraveled. It sounds like using dragooning. So that doctrine is still lurking out there, waiting for its day to be revived in some later decision when something that he doesn't like is attached to federal spending. And now he's got a new doctrine to wave. Oh, you see, way back there in the Obamacare decision years ago, I said, no, and no, no, no dragooning. And now here's, here's my moment to use my new tool uh, to advantage. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Let's just talk about how pro-corporate the court is. In your book, you (laughs) sort of uh, document this or or lay out just the numbers here, right? Yeah. On 5-4 decisions, um, this is before uh, Scalia left and and, um, before uh, Gorsuch came in. All these five, four decisions, one after another, one, five, four decision, one, five, four decision, one, five, four, pro corporate. Yep. And what, what kind of things like one of those that I is is mandatory arbitration. Yeah, they love mandatory arbitration, particularly if they can keep the results secret. Mandatory secret arbitration is the best of all. I did a lot of hearings on mandatory arbitration. because. You did. I was, they, it was really interesting. I, I remember I had one where a woman was suing a hospital because she didn't get promoted and they had a pattern of not promoting women. So she goes in to do the arbitration and the guy has behind him bookshelves with only folders or not folders, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what are those called? The things that uh, Romney talked about binders, the medical binders. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had binders from the hospital. That's all it was. It was like we've done. We do the mandatory arbitration for them. 
I remember another one where uh, this was on sexual assault and uh, I, I read in the testimony, they said, you know, the in mandatory arbitration on this, per, the person coming before for the arbitrator prevails 53% of the time. So I asked, I asked the guy like, okay, if you get $5, are you prevailing? And he goes, no. <laughs> and I said, okay, if you get $50, are you prevailing? He said, no. If you get $500, are you prevailing? And he said, so your question basically is at what amount are you prevailing? I went, yeah, what does this mean? <laughs> and you know, They're just so sleazy. And this guy was from the chamber. And the interesting thing about that, if in this court that is supposedly so deferential to the United States Constitution, is that the United States Constitution actually provides a right of civil jury, jury <laughs> trial. Yeah. It's called the Seventh Amendment. And then along come these judges that are supposedly so loyal to the Constitution, and they take away that jury trial right from people. They let corporations who are either their employers or who provide a service to them, like the telephone company, take away their right of jury trial in the fine print of a contract, not negotiated, not capable of being negotiated. And they don't even bother to mention the Seventh Amendment. They just don't want to talk about it, don't want to hear about it. That's not a right We're, we care very much about our Corporate friends don't want to go in front of juries. They really don't like being treated equally in courtroom. They don't like being under oath. They don't like any of that. So by God, we're going to let them all run off to the mandatory arbitration offices instead. And there goes that constitutional right for probably most Americans right now who have lost that in one contract or another. Oh, and, and all your phone stuff. And uh, and I think I once asked a witness to find the can you find the, the part that says you're waiving this? Yeah. On page 17 out of 70 pages that, that are that are actually not negotiable. It's not like when you sign up for cable service, they sit down and say, OK, now let's go through these uh, <laughs> uh, proposals we have. And you can decide which ones you want, which ones you don't. And we'll come to an agreement. It's totally take it or leave it. And what other kind of. Uh, corporate decision. I mean, pro corporation decisions were made by the court. Well, part of it is that is the substance, like the mandatory arbitration, but part of it is the pattern, and that's what I was really surprised by. I started seeing this behavior come out of the Supreme Court, and it just got weirder and weirder. And as you recall, I started complaining about it expressing concerns about it in our caucus lunches. And people were kind of, well, eh, well you know, Supreme Court, got to give them the benefit of the doubt. They rely on, you know, public support. So I thought, okay, well, we're, we're going to have to take a really hard look at this. So I did an article and we, my office dug down and we went through all of the five to four cases since Roberts was chief justice, where there was a partisan divide five to four and where the issue was a civil one. And I think there were something like 76 of them. And of those 76, there were 72 where and it would be really easy <laughs> to spot the Republican big donor issue, which side the, the Republican donors would be on. Really easy to spot. And then we looked at the outcome. And in those 72 decisions where there was clearly a big Republican donor interest, where the case broke five to four and where it was partisan, it was 72 to zero. I tell yep. you, if you're a lawyer taking a discrimination case or a bias case into court based on statistical evidence, circumstantial statistical evidence, and you can show 72 to zero, that case is settling. Yeah. So let's talk about ethics, because I, I mean, I, I saw you on an MSNBC show uh, after uh, it came out that Clarence Thomas had both. He was the one uh, vote against allowing uh, Congress to 
get the materials that were archived, right, from the White House uh, and regarding January It was the subject of the January 6th investigation, right. yep. It turned out that uh, his wife, you know, she had texted a number of times to Meadows and others. And, you know, the question is, is there a problem? There seems to be a problem there, right? And Roberts, he, he's put the Supreme Court marshal on the Alito leak, the leak of the Dobbs decision. But you think that he would have looked into this. Yep. So there, there are two problems there, if you don't mind me mentioning. One is Thomas came back with the excuse that he and his wife never spoke about her activities um, related to the insurrection and related to groups involved in the insurrection. Oh, he did say that. He said that. Or somebody said on his behalf. It might have been okay. a spokesperson. But that was the that was the response. Oh, he had, well, there. He had no idea. He had no idea whatsoever. Two things. First, that is a factual proposition that lends itself to investigation. And part of the problem with the court is that if mm-hmm. there's an ethics issue like that, there's no process. There's no complaint box where you can put the question. There's no person whose job it is to look at it. There's no evaluation or evidence that's gathered. At the end of the day, there's no report and there's no public uh, disclosure of what it is that the investigation revealed. So. You've got this real um, procedural collapse on your hands. And the fact that Roberts, having just shown that he could investigate stuff, but wouldn't investigate this, created a very unfortunate disparity. So that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that as we went forward, there was another vote that came up with respect to another set of documents. In this case, the Arizona effort to overturn the elections, which he also was involved. Mrs. Thomas had also been in touch with people in Arizona about that. So the same question of her role was in that case. But in the meantime, what had happened is that the press had gotten onto this and all of the information about Jenny Thomas's activities was known, including by Justice Thomas, who would read it in the papers just the way everybody else did. So by the second vote, which he also didn't recuse on, he also voted on. Did he vote no? His defense that he didn't know had been blown up by every newspaper in the country. He did know. And even in those circumstances, he didn't recuse himself. So clearly, his excuse that he didn't know was not what was really going on, was not the gravamen of why He didn't recuse himself, but he didn't recuse himself even when he obviously did know. The weird thing is that Robert sells himself as the guardian of the court's reputation, as a person who's really concerned about the court as an institution. And a court of law that spends all day looking at whether procedures were properly followed, looking at whether evidence was properly gathered and fairly reviewed, going through all of the sort of nuts and bolts work of legal disputes is willing to live with an ethics uh, regime that has none of the basic elements of uh, fairness, none of the basic elements of propriety, none of the basic elements of accountability. It's an inexplicable failure on the part of the court, and they really barely try to defend it. When you ask them questions, you just get blow, you sort of blow off answers. They won't engage. Well, they can do that. They can get away with a lot. Well, we're, we're going to keep coming at them. This is not this is a long way from over. And I very strongly believe that we can we can set rules for the court if it won't set rules for itself. And it's rapidly showing us that it's incapable of setting rules or proper procedure for itself. They, they can do things like. Make a public appearance with McConnell. <laughs> At the McConnell, what is it at, at, the, at the University? The McConnell of Institute at the University of Kentucky. To say they're not partisan. <laughs> okay, now remember that it was like yeah, it, it, it was, was like, like a sketch, it, but it, but it was happening in real life. And they show up at the Federalist Society galas and get feted like returning heroes, you know, standing ovations, and you know, the whole thing is preposterous but 
they're the Supreme Court and they can do that, I guess. Yeah. One last thing is is Alito's Dobbs decision. What what did he say that uh, it had been egregiously decided? But egregiously wrong, wrong from its inception. Something he magically managed to never mention, as he was asked specifically about that case under oath during his uh, confirmation process. So there was a brief window in time when the egregiousness of the uh, wrong of Roe versus Wade suddenly evaporated for him, and then it must have reassembled itself uh, after his hearing once he was onto the court. Well, he didn't say, uh, well, I will say this, it wasn't egregiously wrong. See, that would be a lot. <laughs> or he could say, my opinion changed. Hold time. the tape. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> He's awful. I mean, just in order, who do you hate the most? <laughs> I mean, because he's just been so, uh, he's like doing victory laps and shit, you know? Yeah, but it gives, it seems to give him no pleasure at all. You know, he's, he, he's like a guy who's wanted to do this always. And he's been pent up because he didn't have a majority that would deliver for him. And he's been getting angrier and angrier through all these years and more and more self-righteous. And then finally, he's got his gang of six and they go around starting to blow stuff up. And you'd think at that point, he'd be the happiest guy in America because all of these cases that he's hated, he's able to just tear them apart in front of everybody. And instead of being jovial and cheerful and yay, my day has come, he's snarky and he's angry and he's venomous. And uh, he's, he's the least gracious in victory of any person I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, Sheldon, thanks for uh, for joining me on, on this. And thanks for the book. It's really, um, uh, you know, it, if you read this book, you'll, you'll get depressed a little bit. Well, a lot. No, a lot. It's very depressing. Got to understand the disease before you can apply the cure. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Right. It's just, oh, what a mountain to have to climb. Yeah. Well, we could have, we, if we'd been at this 15 years ago, the mountain wouldn't have been quite so high. We came late to the party and now we've got a lot of work to do. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? 
we recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.